it was only the only thing that was came out of it was to affirm that I have a penis. I don't think it was a waste. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inslicht. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm uh, looking forward to our uh, conversation today, Yoel. I'm looking forward to that as well. We've got a lot of, lot of stuff to talk about. A lot of stuff happened on Twitter. I know I said I quit, and I've mostly quit, but then, you know... You think you're out, and then they they pull you back in, man. Yeah, they pull you right back in. They pull you, know, you back in. You know, one way I was pulled back in. I mean, not that I've left, but I, I was. You know, it's you know, it's kind of like variable reinforcement. Every once in a while, you get this little this little hit. Oh, maybe this thing isn't so bad. Um, and I saw, I believe, a a news story, and this is maybe relating to my you know, obsession with cannabis. Um, but it was a news story coming from, you know, as we know, uh, Canada has legalized cannabis uh, about a month ago and all different kinds of products. And apparently within a week after rollout, it was a news story that um, the Ontario cannabis store confused a quote unquote THC intimate spray with an oral spray. So they advertise an intimate spray uh, as an oral one. Is, that, is there a meaningful difference there? Uh, I don't know, but one you put in your mouth yeah. and the other you put in your intimate areas. I mean, it, it seems like a mucous membrane is a mucous membrane, man. Like, I, I think it's just probably marketing. You know? I, I, I suppose. But... Same shit in a different can. <laughs> I suppose, but, you know, an intimate THC spray? What is that? I mean, that's, is that just fancy lube? Like, what is that exactly? Uh, I, <laughs> I like you're pretending you don't have it. <laughs> I don't, but I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should get it. Well, I, I see a company here. It's called uh, it's called Bear Spray, and, and their tagline is a hit for your naughty bits. Um, and is it? And, and if you look at the testimonials, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, this is the, I had the best night of my life. You know, this this is this has been like you know uh, life changing. And I'm like, really? I mean, what does it do? I don't know. I I think clearly you need to order some. And try it out and report back for the show. Hey, don't we have the uh, the like holiday party gift exchange for the department coming up? Oh my god, that would be uh, that would that would fucking get you fired, or it should. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. I should not you not do that at all. Uh, should we talk about what we're drinking today? Oh yes, uh, we should. Uh, thank you for reminding me because this is actually I think our most special beer that w- that we uh, that we'll be drinking. Uh, in the three or four months that we've been doing this now. Um, so this is a beer that was gifted to us. So this is now what our fourth or fifth uh, donation, which, you know, again, we're blessed with uh, really generous uh, listeners. Um, this was gifted to us by Ken DeMari, who is an associate professor of psychology at uh, the State University of New York at Buffalo. So uh, SUNY Buffalo. Um, and why this is so special is that this is the first time we've received homebrew. So uh, Ken is an avid home brewer and, I, and also a, an award-winning home brewer. And I don't know his exact title, but I believe he's also the president of the Home Brewing Association, some local chapter in Buffalo. So he's serious about beer. And uh, he is an avid listener of the show. And he, um, uh, given that Buffalo is so close to Toronto, he decided to pay a visit last weekend. And, 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 and 
emailed me asking me if I want to meet up and he had some beer for me. And of course, I, I cannot say no to beer. So yeah, he brought us some, again, some great homebrew. So we've got, uh, we actually have three homebrews, all different varieties. Um, and then one, will, uh, the, the fourth is a, uh, a beer from uh, the main brewing company. I'll talk about that after the break. Uh, but right now, um, I'm drinking a Saison uh, that was brewed uh, earlier in the year. Uh, very nice, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, mean, I could, this is like professional beer. Um, and, uh, you got the special one. This is a, uh, you're drinking an American wild ale with mixed fruit. And this beer uh, has won some awards, uh, some home brewing awards, um, and commendation from various societies. So, uh, anyways, it's, you know, I, I'm enjoying it a lot and, uh, you know, thank you, uh, so much, Ken. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. That's delicious. Yep. So, right. uh, cheers. Cheers. So this has been um, been kind of a crazy week. I feel. Um, I think you know, as, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we'll be kind of we're just kind of just responding to the news a little bit. Uh, things that kind of cross our Twitter feeds. There's a bit of a dust up, uh, maybe a minor one, but I, but I think one that is, is worthy of discussion. A dust up uh, of all things about diversity statements. So a diversity statement is essentially uh, a university, but it could also be other employers. Um, might ask a potential uh, employee to write a statement about um, how they have thought about diversity uh, in their teaching and research, um, how uh, if they haven't you know, done anything, what, what, what they plan on doing um, to, uh, to you know, realize that there are you know, uh, marginalized groups that need help and uh, you know, what can you do to, to, to level the playing field. And apparently, more and more schools are asking uh, this uh, in their uh, when they put out job ads. And actually, uh, the University of Toronto was floating this idea as well. Um, I know we were asked uh, for our current job whether we wanted to have a diversity statement, and I think we because we didn't have time to have a full discussion about it, we we said no. But it still might happen for you know maybe the next the next uh, for next year, for example. Um, but UCLA. Um, I guess started this by making this a mandatory thing uh, to ha- to include a uh, an equity, diversity, and inclusion statement. So you know, at, at its face, it seemed uncontroversial. Okay, sure, um, I got to write about you know diversity uh, and how I'm, how I think about it and how I might deal with it. Um, but a, you know, a number of people, I would say, notably on on the right or on the center right, um, kind of responded uh, quite negatively. So yeah, so I mean. What do you think about the desktop? What do you think about the the, the the topic? Yeah, so I think the the pushback really started with this article on uh, the fire.org. And um, I think it's not fair to describe fire as a right-wing organization. I think they're like very free speech focused. Um, and they saw this as a thought to academic freedom um, because it not only in uh, at UCLA is supposed to be considered in hiring, but also in promotion, right? So the university is saying, um, if you don't do this stuff, um, maybe it's you know going to hurt you for promotion. Um, and they fire saw that as um, an impingement on academic freedom. Um, yeah. So first of all, I'm curious how widespread these actually are. Um, I have heard about the UCs requiring them already. I know people have had to write them for the UCs. Um, I don't know of a ton of other places that require them. So I'm I I'd like to know um, how many people are asking. And then you know. My uh, skepticism, I guess, about these is that they they sort of seem like um, administrator value signaling, 
So it's not clear what good they do, how they're going to be used, um, how the, you know, let's say hiring committee is meant to evaluate them. Um, it's not clear that they change people's behavior at all. It's not clear that they lead to better outcomes for underrepresented groups at the um, the organizations that implement these diversity statements. In fact, Sonia Kang has some research showing now this is corporate, not uh, education, right? But like some corporations have these diversity and inclusion statements. Um, and they uh, apparently it's just window dressing, right? They, they act just like the ones that don't um, in terms of are they uh, responding better to, she looks at resume whitewashing, right? So to whitewashed versus non-whitewashed resumes. So, so I'm skeptical of this stuff just because it seems like a little bit of... Um, like BS that some administrator thought would be a good idea to like showcase the like progressive values of the organization um, rather than, you know, anything that's going to actually lead to better outcomes for, for anybody, let alone members of marginalized groups. So that's, that's criticism a is like, even if you approve of the value um, you think that this is just a kind of a dumb way to try and uh, achieve that goal. Okay. So, okay. I, I take your point and I think it's a good one. Um, but, you know, we've done the exact same thing with other sorts of statements. So, I mean, I mentioned that we, we, we have a job now at the University of Toronto in, in our campus, the Scarborough campus. And um, we did something new this year, right? Actually, I think it was at the behest of you and I, uh, who are both on the search committee. Um, we, add, we, we asked that uh, potential, well, all candidates, that they would include a statement on their, you know, uh, what they think about open science or how they practice open science, what they've done, what they intend to do, et cetera. I mean, essentially not that different from my diversity statement. It's like, here are these values that you and I have, you and I share, and, and other people in the department too, not just us. And uh, we're now asking people to kind of tell us about their stance on open science, what they've done to forward the open science mission, and if they haven't done anything yet, what they plan on doing. But we did not, uh, there's no data as far as I know um, that indicates that including a statement um, actually correlates with actually practicing open science. Um, you know, I'm, I don't know how we incorporated it in our decision-making other than maybe excluding people who didn't have an open science statement. Um, so it's actually, it's the same kind of thing. It's also window dressing, but it just so happens to be a value that you and I and, and others care about. You know, I don't really agree because like, I think it's harder to bullshit an open science statement where you can point maybe to verifiable things that you've done already. Like I've pre-registered these studies, I've posted code, um, I've posted data, et cetera, right? So certainly you can say like, oh, I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet, but I'm interested in doing it. And that's a little more BSE, right? But we can evaluate um, different degrees of like demonstrated commitment to those things. And we can say, um, we prefer to hire the person who's shown a demonstrated commitment. Um, let's say we I, we, I guess, didn't talk about how exactly that would weigh against other uh, considerations, but I can imagine that if we like two candidates equally, we might use it as a tiebreaker, for example. Um, so I think that we have an idea of how we're actually going to use this information in our hiring process, that at least in our case, when this idea of a diversity statement for us was floated, like just wasn't there, right? So like, how do you actually evaluate the information they're going to give you, right? was undefined. Right. Okay. So what about the teaching statement? So teaching statement is, again, that's, I think, as far as I know, every job requires a teaching statement. Um, 
And I mean, you could literally go online, look up teachings, David, you could copy and paste it. And I don't think you or I would notice the difference. Have you read any teaching statements? Zero. I've read zero. How many have you read? <laughs> I read zero as well. Yeah. I don't know if we should be admitting this audio, but yeah, no, I just, I, I, I don't, I don't read it. I don't read it because I don't think it's informative. Right. You're going to, you, cause you're going to talk about the buzzwords. You're going to talk about cognitive diversity, which we're not even sure that's even valid. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, active versus passive classrooms. Active is better. We're going to talk about multiple forms of assessment. We're going to talk about all these kind of buzzwords that we know that we ought to be talking about. Now, whether we actually practice that in, in, in our teaching, who knows? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, the fact that we ask for one bullshit thing <laughs> is not a good reason to ask for more. Yeah. And one could also argue, I mean, teaching is, I mean, that is what you are doing. That is, you know, why you're getting paid. Uh, so it, it's much more directly related to the mission of a university. Right. Yeah. Right. So I guess the second one would be um, that it uh, demonstrates a commitment to left-wing values that is going to signal to people who don't share those values, this is not a place for you. And um, I think there was some arguing with the idea that that was a valid concern. So particularly friend of the show, uh, and this is why we're choosing him to pick on, uh, but friend of the show, uh, Will Gervais, um, said Academ academia has some bleak and pessimistic takes on political conservatives. This is bad. In my opinion, diversity statements discriminated against conservatives is one of those bleak and pessimistic takes. The idea being essentially like, what, you're against diversity? That is, that's crazy, right? Like, you know, conservatives can be for diversity. So yeah, I, um, what, do, what do you make of that, that argument? Yeah, I mean... So first of all, you know, I love Will and, and, and we're actually, we, we've collaborated a number of times. I consider him a close friend. Um, I disagree with him here um, for, uh, I mean, I, his, heart, his heart's in the right place, I think, in the sense that, um, I, and maybe we'll, we'll get into this in a bit, but like, you know, what is the problem with diversity? Even if you, even if you are on, on the right, what's the problem with, with acknowledging that there are some people who are disadvantaged um, it could be on any dimension, right? It could be on the dimension of SES. So when Clay Routledge was here, uh, I thought he made an excellent point in saying that, you know, the real disadvantage comes from low SES and not necessarily race, although <laughs> those are unfortunately correlated. Um, uh, and, you know, so what's, you know, what's wrong with, with, with suggesting that, you know, if you come from a low SES background, you're disadvantaged and it would be good for, you know, professors, in, for institutions to try to, again, flatten the playing field for the, for those people. So that's where, I think that's what he's trying to say. Um, but I think where I disagree with them is that, I mean, it's, in some ways it's, it's, it's almost like at this point, like part of the, 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 the culture war, like being for diversity is um, part of the menu of things that you do if you are a liberal. And maybe that's where he's, where he's coming from. It's like, isn't it sad that to be conservative today means that can't be one of your values? Um, and then, you know, I think later on in, um, in some of the other tweets, um, you know, he, you know, he suggested, hey, if you're if you're conservative, you can write a, you can write a diversity statement suggesting that. Um, you know, being on the right is is a, is a stigmatized and uh, disadvantaged group in academia, and I've worked hard to, uh, to to level that playing field. And he and he, you know, kind of said this, 
you know, plainly as if that would be something um, that would be wise to do. And I actually think that would, that would be a foolish thing for any candidate to do, given that we know that, you know, that academia is predominantly left. And we know as well that people ad will admit to discriminating against conservatives. So if you don't want to get a job, um, say that you're a conservative. Um, on those statements, and you're not going to get a second look. Is is, is you know that's that's adding one plus one. Yeah. So yeah, I I also think that this reaction is a little bit um, willfully uh, naive. Uh, so you know, imagine that academia is dominated by people who lean right. Um, that liberals are a small minority. That certainly. You know, even though probably most of your colleagues are going to try to be fair-minded, there's just a general feeling in the field that people on the left are wrong about everything. And certainly there's some people who are going to try and seek you out and discriminate against you if you know they know your political views. Um, and then somebody floats the idea of, hey, we should have people write patriotism statements. And when you're like, hey, you know, it kind of seems like if you're already a kind of political minority in this area, this is really signaling that your views don't belong, that people get mad and they're like, are you saying liberals can't be patriotic? Certainly you could write your statement about how dissent is patriotic. I would love such a statement. And I'm sure that, you know, the people who are saying, I would really value a statement that talked about ideological diversity. I'm sure they're being sincere. The thing is, you can't assume that everybody who's going to be reading your statement would have similar values about that, right? So like the thing you do with these things is you you minimize your risk, right? You don't wanna uh, risk pissing somebody off. You're gonna write like the boilerplate thing about um, helping out underrepresented groups and blah, 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 and sort of like grit your teeth about it, right? It would be kind of idiotic to write it in a way that's like might push buttons because you're trying to not disqualify yourself with these things. Right, and actually you can find diversity statements online. I found a, a number. Um, you could just copy and paste those two. Right. Change some words. Boom. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, okay, so I, I actually like that point that you made. Like, you know, imagine, you know, uh, uh, getting academics uh, or any any uh, empl potential employee to write a patriotism statement. Yeah, I mean, right on its face, I'm like, no way. There's no way I'm going to write something like that. That offends me. Um, but yet the idea of being patriotic to Canada doesn't offend me. Um, but you know, it's more than what that statement, you know, means and, and who, who it's aligning with, I think, but you're right. I, I would have, I would have major trouble with it. And that's, and that's why we can see why, um, conservatives might have trouble with diversity statements, which they would argue, um, you know, come straight from the, you know, social justice warrior handbook. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of interesting that people like have trouble seeing, kind of the ideological signaling of stuff that they themselves believe is like a good idea, right? So I think to lots of people on the left, it just seems like diversity is such an obviously positive thing who could not value it. And they have a hard time imagining that it also to somebody who doesn't share their views signals like allegiance to a certain set of beliefs, right? Like you kind of need to step outside of your own ideology in order to like consider that. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the reactions from people on the left that were like, well, you know, obviously people should be for this thing. And like, it's kind of sad to say you couldn't write a statement for it. It just reflects that, like not, not doing the perspective taking to think what would this look like to somebody who is standing kind of outside this ideology. Right. Okay. So I want to, I want to push a little bit on, 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 you know, on this kind of objection that conservatives might have. So let's say we stripped this, um, 
this idea of a, a diversity statement from its, let's say, you know, the, the cultural war baggage. Okay. I know that's impossible, but we're just, we're just talking here. Um, so is there anything objectionable about talking about, you know, ways you're trying to level the playing field? And, 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 and let's, let's keep it to, let's not keep it to ideology, ideological diversity. Cause I think conservatives would be happy with that, but let's keep it to more you know, traditional uh, you know, forms of diversity. Um, so race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, SES, uh, ethnicity, uh, et cetera. Um, what is objectionable about that on its face? Um, if you are, to anyone, but you know, if, if you're a conservative. Well, it would be nice to have an actual conservative here to like answer these questions. But I, I guess the idea of not treating people equally. Um, I think a lot of conservatives would say we should evaluate people based on their um, achievements or their ability to do the job um, and their identity characteristics shouldn't be a factor in that. So if a focus on diversity means different standards uh, for different groups of people, that's bad um, and we shouldn't do it. Okay, but what, I mean, so in, in a way you're kind of touching on this, um, the this distinction between equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. As far as I can tell, conservatives are for equality of opportunity. Um, so couldn't one write a diversity statement geared towards that form of diversity? So by me spending a little bit extra time with, let's say, a student who is a first-generation college student, I might give them the social capital that they otherwise wouldn't have. If I spend some time with a, you know, a, a black student um, who, again, they're, they're underrepresented in, in the college campus, I'm giving them knowledge that they didn't have. And again, kind of um, leveling the playing field in terms of the opportunities they have. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to only hire, um, let's say, black people or only women or whatever it is, but it's literally, what am I doing to give them the opportunities that other people might already have? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel super qualified to argue this side. Um, the best I can do is to say, you know, people might say, look, like in theory, that sounds great. In practice, um, the way that this is implemented is you go straight from a numerical disparity between, you know, the prevalence of a group in the population and in, you know, whatever group you care about, let's say university professors, and you assume that that disparity is due to some sort of like discrimination. And then you want heavy handed top down kind of like quotas or, or uh, different, uh, different standards for different groups in order to rectify those disparities, right? So, so the, the objection is to that, and they would say it's sort of baked into the concept of diversity, even though in theory, you could come up with a definition of diversity that doesn't have that inherent in it. That's just not how it's practiced. Okay, so to, me to flesh it out a little bit, so just to, with an example. So something like, um, let's assume you're conservative and you think that part of the reason there, um, uh, there are uh, sex differences in participation in STEM is not discrimination, although that might be part of it. Um, you also think it's just basic differences in interests in what, in what you want to do with your life. Um, so then spending more time with women uh, in the, at, at the undergraduate level um, is kind of forcing something. It's, it's forcing something that is not necessarily there. Um, and why are you preferentially paying attention to women when you can be paying attention to, you know, just the people who need help? 
and that could be men or women. Is that that's is that the that the argument? Yeah, I think that would be the idea, right? Like that these um, these programs that are trying to create equal representation in every area between men and women are just misguided because um, just due to differences in preferences or whatever, men and women are going to choose to do different things, right? So like it's kind of um, at best an expensive waste of time to try to put your thumb on the scales there, you know, even if it's just outreach and not, um, you know, different standards or, or whatever for, for men and women. Um, so just like let people do what they want to do um, and uh, don't uh, don't try to socially engineer this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. It shows us how complicated this is, right? Because um, if you you know, have a distinct idea of why the, 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 the inequity or the supposed inequity exists to begin with, that determines, you know, the, the remedy for it. So if you think that the, the reason, again, we're just using, using this as an example, there are fewer women in STEM um, than men is because of discrimination, then well, then of course, then you should, you know, give extra effort, you know, do, do things to, um, uh, to level that playing field. If, however, you think the cause of it is, uh, at least in part caused by just natural preferences in, in, in what you want to spend your time doing. Um, then you're like, why am I, why am I giving all this extra attention to, uh, you know, to people who don't necessarily want the attention? Yeah. And I guess the objection would be, um, left-wing diversity advocates, they go straight from the numerical disparities to assuming discrimination, right? So they don't even entertain other possibilities. So it's like, if you see a disparity, then that must mean that discrimination has occurred and that we need to intervene to remedy it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you there. I mean, I think that's that the automatic, but it, but it's really hard, right? I mean, it's really hard to determine it otherwise. I mean, so the, the numbers are at least, that's a quantitative account of there being some inequality. Um, and it's not that hard to imagine that um, those numbers could have been produced by inequality at the opportunity level, right? So I think many progressives would say those numbers are proxies for the thing we care about, which is equality of opportunity. But in, in fact, it is the equality of outcome that you're looking at, and you don't know why you got there. Is it differences in... It's probably both is, is what it really is. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that it's... It, it's it, 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 it's yeah, it's fraught. Just even looking at this exact same numbers is, you know, people have different interpretations of what those numbers mean. And as a result, they have different um, prescriptions about what to do about it. And I guess conservatives are, are, are less willing to, to think that discrimination played a, a strong role in some of these disparities. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing that people on the left and right could get behind is changing assessment processes such that biases are less likely to play a role. So that doesn't mean, um, you know, giving preferential treatment to one group or another. Um, That means, so for example, it could mean uh, blinding the evaluator to the gender of the person being evaluated, right? Um, So this uh, kind of well-known example of symphony orchestras, mostly male, um, and it turns out that when you have musicians audition behind a screen um, so that the people judging the audition can't see whether it's a man or a woman, all of a sudden women get rated much more highly, right? And so that just seems like, well, that, that's just basic fairness to design a process such that these variables that everybody agrees shouldn't play into evaluations don't in fact play into evaluations. So like, can we do that for our stuff? I mean, it's it's tough to 
you can't really evaluate, you know, prospective um, like job candidates or whatever, gender blind. We might get rid of things that we know suck anyway and that have some gender bias in them. So teaching evals, for example, um, which are shitty for all sorts of reasons. And one of those reasons is women um, seem to incur a penalty there. Um, so that's something easy, right? Um, other than that, I mean, it's it's really, it's difficult to think about how we would get how we would get gender like knowledge of gender out of our evaluation processes just because like it's you're you're asked to write like you know outside letters for example for people like you, you obviously have to know who they are right um you know who you, what what gender your colleagues are when you're evaluating them for a promotion or whatever so it's it's a little tougher to you can't just put them behind a screen right but i i guess like in general the principle you could look at things in the evaluation process that seem to have a potential for bias built into them and you could try to work against that by changing the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Yoel, I'm, uh, I'm low on beer here. Holy shit. I know. How um, did that happen? <laughs> uh, all this diversity talk has uh, got me uh, angry and, and wanting to drink. It's thirsty stuff, man. And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to get in touch with us. So you can reach us on Twitter at at 4 Pod. You can at mention us or DM us. Our DMs are open. So whether we follow you or not, uh, we will get your message. If you're more into email, you can email us at 4 Pod at gmail.com. That email will go to both of us. And you can find our back catalog of episodes at 4beers.fireside.fm. Um, so you can go there to listen to any one of those. Although the web player, um, you know, it's it's a web player, right? So I I really would recommend downloading the episodes in a, a podcast player of your choice. They're, you know, they come built in now on iOS and Android, and there's numerous other ones that uh, that you can choose to install as well. So really, that's the way to get the show. Anyway, um, now back to our show. Mickey, what are we drinking? Uh, so we are drinking some more of... Uh you know, Ken DeMarie's uh, beautiful beer. Uh, so uh, you are drinking a double bock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he brought us uh, three home brews. Uh, you're drinking the third. And the fourth that I'm drinking is from uh, the main beer company, I believe it's called, uh, an IPA. So, you know, I know he's he's from upstate New York. He bought a, he, he got us a main beer, but we appreciate it because it's not something we can get here in Ontario. That's right. So, Mickey, when you suggested starting this podcast as a way to scam free beers from people, I was like, that's never going to work. Nobody's going to fall for that. But, you know, I'm eating my words here, <laughs> drinking them, I guess. That's right. I had an ulterior motive the entire time. Isn't it kind of hilarious? I, mean, I kind of just said it spontaneously, like in one of our early episodes. And we've essentially been uh, furnished with, with beer for like a number of weeks now. Yeah, that's right. And just one last little plug. Um, you know, for, uh, you know, please rate us on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, we get some ratings, uh, not tons. And uh, if you rate us, uh, more people can find us. So if you like what we're doing, uh, please do rate us. Um, and as well, uh, I, you know, I know you all and I both really appreciate when, you know, we, we get interactions on, you know, on Twitter, on DMs. And feel free to, like, you know, recommend topics and ideas. I mean, we're, we 
are very likely not to take your idea up, but we might. Um, and, uh, you know, we appreciate, you know, uh, the, the various ideas you might have about, you know, things you find interesting and things you might think that we'll find interesting. So uh, keep it up. No doubt. All right. So, Mickey, you found something on the internet that we should talk about, eh? Yeah, that's right. So keeping with our theme of, you know, kind of being inspired by current events and uh, really science Twitter uh, for this, uh, this current episode. Um, yeah, there's a series of provocative tweets um, by Jeffrey Sachs, uh, who I believe is out of Acadia, Acadia University in Nova Scotia. Um, and uh, just as a little bit of background, so Jeffrey Sachs, he's kind of had a bit of back and forth, I think, with uh, Jonathan Haidt and uh, Heterodox Academy. He's pushed back a little bit against the notion that there is a free speech crisis on campus. And I believe um, uh, he wrote a Vox article uh, kind of pushing back against some, some of the Heterodox Academy claims um, about there being a free speech crisis and in fact saying, hey, if anything, um, um, you know, people who are disinvited or, or who are being sanctioned are, are, are more likely to be on the left than on the right. Um, anyway, so he, um, I would call him a bit of a, a Twitter provocateur. He likes to stir things up a little bit. Um, anyways, he, he wrote uh, a series of tweets with, with, that I found uh, interesting. Um, so let me read, uh, let me read them. Um, so here, there are three of them. So the first one, um, here's a puzzle I think about a lot. If any academic field is associated with the contemporary debate surrounding free speech, it's psychology. Hate, so Jonathan Hate, Steven Pinker, Jordan Peterson, Gad Saad, Lee Jessam, even Claire Lehman, all specialize or have backgrounds in academic psychology. So what's the puzzle? And now tweet number two. If psychology has any core premise, um, and I think this is arguable, so if psychology has any core premise, it is that we do not observe or make sense of the world unmediated. Our brains, quote unquote, get in the way, both for good and for ill. Our biases, habits, and biologies shape what we're willing to do, say, or believe. Um, and now we're getting into tweet number three. Um, I don't have an answer. Just some very uncharitable guesses about psychologists as historically ignorant, cognitive elitists who would blanch if forced to grapple with the actual existing nature of American political discourse. Like I said, uncharitable. So, I mean, if I could sum up, I mean, he's, he's essentially saying, um, you know, tweet number one is, hey, we've got this kind of, uh, this meme, this, uh, uh, this argument being put forth I don't even say a strong argument um, that uh, there is a free speech crisis on campus. Um, and uh, he argues that uh, really the leaders the contemporary the, to this contemporary debate are mostly psychologists. So Jonathan Haidt, Steven Pinker, Jordan Peterson, et cetera. Um, and uh, then, then the notion is, and, and, and he finds that weird because, uh, you know, if anything, well, one of our central premises, and I don't disagree with this, is that really, you know, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. We see the world, you know, filtered through our own biases. Um, and, and I think the point there, he's missing something here a little bit, but I, I, I think the point he's trying to say is, given these biases, given that our world is filtered by these biases, you know, rational discussion is not going to help. 
right? So encouraging other people to, to have discussion, uh, you know, opening up free speech is, you know, not going to necessarily convince other people. I think that's what I took from that, but maybe not. Um, and then he's, you know, had these, you know, uncharitable attributions as to why psychologists were essentially um, historically ignorant and we're cognitive elitists. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. Uh, maybe he means we're smart. Um, uh, but yeah, so he, you know, he, he's not really sure. So anyways, interesting series of tweets. Uh, and it does beg the question, you know, A, you know, why is it, you know, uh, why is it, well, is it, first of all, psychologists who are kind of the leaders of this? And if so, why? Yeah. So I, I do think this is a really interesting topic. I, I think that these tweets, now that I, I mean, I read them, um, you know, at the time, or maybe you sent them to me, now that you read them back to me, this is BS. This is, uh, you know, this, I guess he's not a psychologist, but I, I think it's just ridiculous to say, because people are motivated reasoners, we despair of ever convincing anybody of anything. Uh, that's that's crap, right? So like, if you think that it's because you are, uh, you have a distorted picture of what the research on motivated reasoning says, um, kind of an oversimplification or like a kind of a popularized or bastardized version of like the research that we do, which says like, you know, look, yes, people are motivated reasoners, but also people can change their minds. People have, they, they operate under reality constraints, right? So you can't just believe whatever you like. Um, you need to have a good reason for believing it. And of course, people can change their minds if they're exposed to new information or to new views. Nothing in psychology says that's not the case. Um, and I also think there's there's a lot of work in in um, moral psychology and evolutionary psychology about this sort of coalitional thinking about moral taboos about sacred values, all of those things that would say it's actually very dangerous to have ideological homogeneity because you're going to quickly develop like things that are unsayable, right? And I think a lot of the you know, psychologically oriented you know, pro free speech on campus people, like they, they really draw from that work to say like, these are the pernicious consequences that come from having kind of a moralized set of values around empirical questions that it's really going to affect our ability to do good science. So I would say like, as an assessment of what psychology says about the value of free speech, this is a statement from somebody who knows very little about psychology, which is fair because he's a political scientist. He doesn't have to know anything about our field. <laughs> <laughs> We're historically ignorant and cognitive elitists, uh, you will. Yeah, yeah, right. good. Feels um, good. Yeah, but you know what? I, I agree with you. So I think what you hit on is exactly right. I mean, I, I, you know, so he didn't elaborate on the puzzle, but I'm like, he said that thing. I'm like, where is the puzzle here? Um, yes, we know people are biased, um, but we, you know, this entire area of psychology, you know, judgment decision-making um, pioneered by you know, Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman and, and, and Amos Tversky, um, who, you know, outlined all the various ways our mind goes astray and, and leads us sideways. But they didn't do that to be like, hey, you know, what the fuck? You know, nothing we can do about it. I mean, we're, we're just, you know, tr you know, victims of these biases. They outlined, uh, they outlined these biases so that we could do something about it. They're like, look, let's recognize that we think, we don't think statistically. And we have these biases. But if you do X, Y, and Z, you might not be able to like, you know, be completely get rid of it. But you might be able to stem some of the influences of those biases. So, you know, psychology, sure, we, we recognize biases, but, you know, it's the act of recognizing those biases that helps us, even just the awareness of it helps us overcome some of it to some extent. Right. So should we talk about the, um, the substance of the question, I suppose? Because I, I suppose there's two parts. First, is it really the case 
that um, of the people who are sort of loud about arguing for uh, right-leaning or maybe you might say like critical of the dominant in academia liberal discourse, are those people disproportionately from a psych background? Um, is that true even empirically? And if it is true, why should that be the case, right? So on the first question, like, yeah, I, I ran this by um, a friend of mine, friend of the show, Paul Litvak, I was like, what do you think of this article? And he was like, I don't just, I just don't buy the premise, right? Like, um, I think there's plenty of people like from law, from economics, who argue for more right-leaning positions. So um, Amy Wax at uh, Penn, for example, has been in the news um, for some pretty controversial views. Um, uh, Robin Hansen, uh, George Mason University economist. Uh, there's actually a Slate article that, that asks, is, uh, is Robin Hansen America's creepiest economist? <laughs> so, and, it, you know, he, he sort of, I think, deliberately argues for stuff that's sort of like button pushing for people on the left. Um, so I, I think you can certainly like, if you, if you look, um, in other fields, you can find people who are arguing for things that liberals don't like, you know, and those people are not psychologists. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the premise, I'm not sure I agree with. Um, so, I mean, you know, we had an entire episode on the, on the intellectual dark web. Um, and I mean, you, one could argue that, that one of their, um, you know, I think not kind of principle, but I, I think it unites many of them is this, you know, notion of like, you know, free speech is being you know, threatened. Some of them, they argue specifically being threatened on campus. Um, some less so, but I mean, like, you know, uh, Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, I mean, you know, well, Brett, especially, I mean, he's an academic biologist. We have, you know, Alice Dreger, um, who I think, I, I'm not sure she's agitated too much about necessarily like free speech on campus, but I mean, she's been a target of some of these, you know, uh, uh, internet mobs. And, and I, 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 she's, I think, made some arguments about free speech and, and, you know, it being necessary. And she is an historian um, or a bioethicist. Um, Nick Christakis, uh, a sociologist. Now, I think he is a champion of free speech out of circumstance. He, he ended up being in the at the center of a firestorm uh, at Yale University when, I mean, it's too long of a story to get into here, but essentially he was yelled at um, and was videotaped uh, and put online uh, because of, you know, he, some position that he took. Um, so I think there's lots of people uh, who who fall in, you know fall in this camp who aren't psychologists. So uh, yeah, I too I'm not sure this is uh, psychology specific. Yeah, but let's say we grant the premise, right? So are there reasons that you might think psychologists would be more likely than other uh, scientists or, or even maybe social scientists to um, run afoul of the left? Yeah, well, I mean, to give like you know, to give um, Jeff some you know uh, his argument some credit. I mean, I, I don't think he's completely off base, even with the premise. So I don't think it's only psychology, but it is curious that there are a lot of psychologists, right? So we already mentioned you know you know Jonathan Haidt, uh, Stephen Pinker, you know Lee Justum has been talking about this for a long time. Gad Saad, um, Claire Lehman, who's the founder of Colette, she has a, a I think she started working in uh, forensic psychology. So, I mean, it is curious. So, so why? Um, 
and uh, I think there's a, a few answers uh, uh, to why this might be. And actually, you know, I'm going to you know say that I cribbed some of these uh, directly from this um, this blog uh, called the Scholar's Stage. Um, I don't know who who this is or who they are um, because no name is associated with uh, with this page. But uh, I, I like the arguments here, and, and they make a few. Um, but the one that uh, that resonated with me the most is this notion that um, one of the topics that we uh, discuss a lot um, in psychology, uh, in social psychology especially, is we, we are influenced by evolutionary psychology. So evolutionary psychology is its own field, but it's, for whatever reason, it seems maybe most aligned with social psychology or there's, there's some connection there. Um, and uh, evolutionary psychology is, you know, by definition, anti-blank slate. It's this notion that our genes determine, uh, at least to some extent, even to a large extent, who we are as people. Um, and I think this rubs, I don't think, I know it rubs many, many people the wrong way. It, it rubs against a certain zeitgeist that we have as society. Uh, and, and I think one that's cherished by the left. And that is this notion that we could, you know, you're free to be anything you want. You could be anything you set your mind to. You know, the only limit to what you can be is your imagination. And that's the kind of, you know, the, the platonic ideal of that idea. Um, but there is this kind of notion of, of you can be, you know, you're free to be any, any, anything you want. Um, and this kind of notion of genes determining uh, who you are runs directly counter to that. Um, so, you know, your genes determining, for example, your intelligence, um, your genes determining your personality, your genes determining your, I mean, to an extent, when I say determine, I don't mean 100%, but determining to some extent, um, your, your, your preferences. Okay. Um, and we've seen this, I mean, this is very strong and very good evidence that this is the case. And I think, I, I think pretty much all psychologists agree with that, agree that genes matter a lot, that uh, biology matters a lot in determining these, these traits, your abilities, capabilities. Um, and that runs afoul for, uh, of you know, left-wing dogma. So, so who attacks these ideas are people on the left. And given that, uh, given that we're now, you know, these central ideas, very, very well-supported ideas are, are attacked by the left, then it's, it makes sense that we'd be supportive of people saying what we consider to be truths or, or, or at least very, very well-supported uh, findings. Um, and we're, we're opposed to people who don't allow people to speak those truths. Um, so it, may, it would make sense that we, you know, we're, 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 you know, more willing to stand up for kind of free speech issues, given that. It makes sense that if you're studying human behavior, you're going to come up with some things that people on the left don't like, and you're going to come up with some things that people on the right don't like. And psychologists are surrounded more in their immediate environment by people who lean left, right? So they're going to be criticized more probably by people from the left than from the right, um, from within academia. And so if you're reacting against your critics, that means you're more kind of critical of the left than the right. Um, I think that's that's pretty obvious, um, unless you assume that people on the left just magically have ideological beliefs that line up with empirical reality, which I don't think that is a very safe assumption. I do think it's interesting that you mentioned um, stuff about, you know, cognitive ability, which I think is such a fascinating thing that, you know, in part breaks down along ideological lines because of 
um, you know, group differences, so racial differences. But but I think even on the right, um, so regardless of politics, there's just kind of a discomfort with the idea that your cognitive ability could be strongly influenced by your genes. So that like a big part of your cognitive ability, you're just like, you can't do a lot about, right? And it's totally uncontroversial that for something like athletic ability, that a lot of that is just biologically determined, right? I'm never going to play for the NBA. No matter how much I practice, you know, I can devote my life to it. I'm never going to be an NBA great basketball player. Nobody has a problem with that, right? And yet we all want to believe that, you know, with enough uh, grit and determination and work, like anybody could be a Supreme Court justice, right? And I actually don't really understand the divergence between those two things. Maybe it's that cognitive ability is more valued, right? And we feel uncomfortable saying this extremely valued characteristic. Um, many people are inherently limited in how much they can develop that. Maybe that's the problem. Um, but I do think that like, regardless of politics, that's something that people are extremely uncomfortable with. And um, they're just really motivated to ignore the kind of scientific consensus among you know, intelligence researchers that a lot of this is genetic. You know, that's not to say the environment doesn't matter, obviously not, but that there are kind of genetic um, limits for many of us to like how smart we can be. Yeah, that, 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 that's a really interesting point. So yeah, it, uh, yeah, I really like that. So um, uncontroversial that there are differences in, in athletic ability, but controversial that there might, I, I, and also that there's a, those differences are genetically, or at least partially determined genetically, um, but very controversial when you make that same argument for intelligence. Um, and is that, again, is that, uh, is it because, well, A, I think something like intelligence or cognitive ability is like a master ability in some way. It, 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 it determines so many other things. Right, so athletic ability, okay, that will determine whether you how well you play sports, um, and you know whether you're chosen first or last for you know the baseball team or whatever it is in your pickup game. Um, but it's although we can determine some aspect of career opportunities and achievement and how much money you have in your bank account, um, it's probably a mild uh, determinant. Whereas IQ or intelligence, I mean, it has such a massive effect on so many aspects of your life. Um, that it's more critical. It's more important than athletic ability. Yeah. Well, okay, attractiveness. Um, I Maybe it's just because it's undeniable that some people are better looking than others, right? So like there's your reality constraint. Whereas cognitive ability is this, it's, it's less visible, right? So maybe you can convince yourself that, uh, that it's less... Um, I don't want to say immutable, you know, because that's wrong, but it's more changeable than it actually is, right? But I, I think intelligence is something that's incredibly socially valued, that has wide-ranging consequences uh, for how you're treated, um, even how much you make, um, how other people evaluate you. And we're pretty comfortable saying some people are just like better looking than other people, right? Mm -hmm. That's just, you know, and we might argue about where those standards come from. So I, I think some people kind of misguidedly say like, oh, it's all cultural, you know, and I, I think that's that's pretty clearly wrong. Um, so that, I think there are pretty clearly cross-cultural universals. I'm objectively unattractive in every culture. <laughs> that is, 
you you have more hair than I do, so that's <laughs> that's a win. Um, you know, it's funny. Like you know, when people, I I gave a lecture on attractiveness to my intro social class. I'm like, look, like the stuff that you just think of as a given um, doesn't have to be right. It's not. It doesn't have to be a given that there's no culture where like having boils on your face. Uh, is considered to be like an attractive attribute. But that's just an empirical fact and people just accept it because it just seems like like just obvious, right? And you take a step back and you're like, hey, well, does it have to be? It's like, no, no, boils could be great. You know, you can imagine uh, some planet where boils are amazing, like super desirable. Everybody wants <laughs> a boils. very bulbous boil you have on yeah. your nose there. You oh are. my God. Did you see that chick? She's got like the, <laughs> the shapeliest boils. Where's my THC lube, dude? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, that's a really, you know, that's a great analogy. I, I really like that. Um, uh, yeah, because I mean, it's hard to argue that, that attractiveness doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help you in so many different ways in your life. Uh, more than just relationships and who you can attract, uh, other things as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. We were, we're, it's uncontroversial. Um, but intelligence is... Okay, so do you think our reluctance to, you know, uh, grant that there are real differences in intelligence that, at least in part, in large part, are, are heritable, um, do you think that is cultural? So in other words, if I went to a different culture, um, uh, people would just as they're easily can, can say, hey, person A is more attractive than person B, they can also say, hey, person A is more is smarter uh, than person B. Yeah, uh, I think that's totally right. So I don't have any empirical evidence on that, but I think especially for Americans, it, it's just part of our cultural the american DNA. dream yeah exactly i mean this is baked into this kind of this mythology of i mean yes i mean it's called the american dream but i, I mean but some i've heard sometimes people call talk about it a canadian dream i think it might be a western value in some to some extent like this this notion of a meritocracy i think it, it's it's most fully developed in the u.s where um there's well it's just less history right less you know aristocracy and all that stuff so that you know there can at least be a mythology of meritocracy um but uh but maybe, you know, it's part of the zeitgeist of, you know, if you work hard enough, if you, you know, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this is part of the partisan work ethic, right? This this notion of you work hard enough, you can get, you know, what you want. And that's not completely incorrect, right? So, you know, sweat equity does make a difference. Working hard does make a difference. Um, but you need to work less hard if you're, if, if you've got the goods already. Yeah. So... I think that's a big part of it is we tolerate a high degree of inequality because we believe um, that success is available to anybody, right? So if you work hard enough, if you apply yourself, you can be successful. And we say like, and people interpret, you know, uh, the idea that there's a substantial genetic component to cognitive ability as saying, well, that's not true, right? There's some people who just are uh, born not being able to achieve at the highest levels, right? And then it's kind of a very uncomfortable idea of like, well, we're going to tolerate that those people have, you know, bad outcomes that, you know, we want to be able to say like people earned it or they didn't, which I, I mean, to me, the whole, the whole thing is incoherent, right? Like, even if you're like, oh, it's work ethic, it's like, well, where'd your work ethic come from, right? Like in, in the end, we don't, we're not responsible actually for anything, right? So I worked hard to get my work ethic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's just like an infinite regress, right? But we want to believe that if there is this kind of uh, very, very obvious 
inequality and in outcomes where some people do quite well and some people do much less well, that we've earned that, right? That we're responsible for that in some way. And by the way, we as a profession, we're, we're on the positive side of that, right? We're the people who've done well, right? And so I think on, and to some degree, we're motivated to say like, oh no, I earned that. You know, like uh, in some way, like I deserve it, right? Like I deserve to be doing that much better than the person who has to work retail or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. So, so I mean, to distill this argument um, in, in response to, to Jeffrey Sachs's question. Um, so essentially we're part of, you know, the, the really the accepted, you know, the accepted facts or accepted findings of, of our field is that people do differ. Um, and that these differences are, at least in part, genetically determined. Um, so it's the opposite of in this blank slate idea, right? And it seems like blank slateism um, uh, it still seems to be a, a dominant idea, uh, at least in certain branches uh, in, in, in the humanities on the left. Um, I just said the left, but on the, in the humanities, let's say. Um, so maybe because of that, because again, we're again rubbing against the orthodoxy of, of the left, we are then more willing to, to fight against, you know, people who push back against this idea. I mean, it's very easy for us to push back against people who say um, there's no such thing as IQ or that IQ is completely nonsense or constructed and, you know, is made up or completely based on biased tests. We're like, we can point to mountains and mountains of evidence against it. And then it, it equips us well to talk, you know, to engage in other battles on the cultural wars unrelated to IQ. Yeah. And I think, you know, like in a broader cultural sense in the U.S., you know, certainly like politically, the right has a lot of power. But um, in the kind of narrow context where most behavioral researchers find themselves around other academics, it's really the left that's dominant. Right. And so it's the things that piss off the left that are going to get the most pushback that you're going to end up arguing against the most and that then maybe from that perspective you're going to say well this is where the real problem is like these are the ideas that's that are being suppressed this is the intellectual dogma that's being propagated this is what we need to fight against right so it's, it's a question of your like local environment rather than the broader right environment so i've got you know actually a question of you i'm not sure if you have these uh these these numbers at the ready um but okay you know there's been a lot made of the fact that uh academia is in general overwhelmingly left um, and that psychology is overwhelmingly left. But now how do we stand relative to other social sciences or even the humanities? Are we more, I, again, we're incredibly left-leaning, but are we more right-leaning than, for example, anthropology? Yes, we are. Yeah. So I think um, I don't have the numbers at my uh, fingertips, but uh, from memory, we are less left-leaning than anthropology and sociology. Um, so we're at, at a ratio of um, somewhere between like 12 and 20 to 1, um, liberal to conservative. Um, but for anthropology and sociology, it's even more skewed than that. Um, and political I, science, do you know? Offhand? I don't know political science offhand. Political science is an interesting one because like from my just interaction with political scientists, like just, you know, reading their stuff or on Twitter or whatever, they just don't seem that partisan. They're like very into the, like the technical details, right? So like how does, uh, how the economy is doing, 
uh, predict whether a, a presidential candidate is likely to be reelected, right? What are incumbency advantages? Like, how does um, gerrymandering help or hurt uh, people's chances of being reelected? Stuff like that, which is like much more about like these like very kind of specific like nonpartisan factors. Um, so I don't, I, I, w I would love for some political scientists to tell me I'm wrong, but I just don't feel like in terms of their work, like that they're naturally pushed in this kind of like ideological direction, right? Because they're looking so much at the mechanics. Maybe because, I mean, the topic of studies politics, it almost requires some degree of, uh, needs to remove themselves to some extent from the topic matter. Um, and they're less partisan as a result of it. Hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, economics, I believe is to the right of us. Right. No surprise. Yeah. No, no, no surprise there. Um, so, okay. So, I mean, the reason, I, the reason I ask is, um, you know, that's po possibly one answer, despite us being overwhelmingly left, we're still more right than, you know, our, you know, um, our sister disciplines in, in the social sciences, I suspect we're way more to the right than uh, many disciplines in the humanities. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm nearly certain that that's true. Well, maybe also as well. I mean, this is you know one of the topics we now study, right? We now study well, political psychology is a branch of, I guess, social psychology. Uh, moral psychology, which kind of, to some extent, there is some overlap in moral psychology and political psychology. Again, part of, you know, it's psychology. So um, maybe it's because we study these very topics that we're kind of, we can we can pinpoint some of the, the problem areas. Yeah. So I don't think it's a coincidence that John Heights, like the, the work that made him famous really was about moral reasoning and about moral reasoning coming more from kind of intuitive feelings of approval or disapproval rather than deliberative reasoning. And if you take that seriously, there's no reason to think that like, you know, the left is exempt from that, right? And then you start looking for the moral intuitions that underlie the moral judgments that people on the left are making. And you're kind of like that skepticism, like is is sort of corrosive of a unquestioning endorsement of those kinds of values, right? You start asking like, well, why, why do we believe that, right? Why right. do we think that? Like, is our stated reason the actual reason or is there something else going on? Right. Right. So it just makes you generally skeptical of people's kind of moral and ideological commitments, like, you know, in, just regardless of where they are politically. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting because I was thinking a little bit about, um, you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt's um, uh, moral intuitionist model. Um, and it strikes me that that's the precise model that Jeffrey Sachs, you know, would pinpoint to to be like, look, you even saying, saying yourself that it's all about intuitions and the rationality comes afterwards. So, you know, the rationality is window dressing on the intuitions. Um, but again, I, I think we can we can transcend that. Yeah. So, I mean, to to um, defend Hyde a little bit, it's you know it's actually called the social intuitionist model. And I think what gets neglected there a lot is people really focus on the intuition part, but a lot of the um, components of the model are actually about persuading other people. So, for example, um, we can try to use reasoned persuasion, which Hyde thinks normally doesn't isn't particularly effective. But we can also try and evoke other moral intuitions in people we're talking to. And he thinks that's actually going to be quite a bit more effective, right? So a lot of that actually is about how do we persuade other people. So it's actually really important um, if you take that like view of morality seriously to have people with conflicting moral views because they really might change your mind.
Oh, that's interesting. I, so this is the, this is in reference to the um, the Mercier and Sperber argument. This kind of this, this argument that rationality isn't about figuring out figuring stuff out. It's it's about potentially about arguing and persuading. But I kind of took that um, that connection to be like it's it's just fraught in the sense that um, uh, you know. The, because what comes first is the intuition. We're just arguing, you know, just for an intuition. So it's kind of immune to, uh, in a way, immune to rationality to some extent. But you're you're saying no. It's actually it is it is pliable, and um, you can persuade uh, and you can convince. That's right. Yeah. So Hyde thinks that it's going to be much more uh, effective to appeal to counter moral intuitions rather than to like reasoned argument. Um, but he explicitly doesn't think that people are unpersuadable, right? He thinks that moral persuasion definitely happens a lot. Um, it just, uh, I think he would say, many people would think that the best way to persuade somebody is on the basis of facts and that that's wrong. And so he would say that it's, it's based on, again, evoking moral intuitions in them. Yep, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so really, that, I mean, that's, that, that I mean, that does that at least solves Jeffrey Sachs's riddle. It's like no, I mean, yeah, the, the biases are there, but we can be convinced, we can be persuaded. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, shall we? Uh, shall we wrap it up? <laughs> yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey Sachs, for uh, for providing us with an interesting question. Yeah, and uh, thanks, Ken Demarie, for the beer. Very much appreciated. Yep. Cheers. Well, catch you next time. <laughs>